Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am again your host, the one and only Kid Kong, and today we're going to be talking about a movie that the subject matter is something that's rather close to my heart. I don't know if it comes across very well when I speak, but I have an almost... The personality that I put out here on this is a little bit bigger, a bit larger than life attempting, and I got that because I am a lifelong fan of professional wrestling. So today we're going to be talking about The Wrestler from 2008, directed by Darren Aronofsky, who also produced it. He's known, of course, for Requiem for a Dream, The Fountain, Black Swan, uh, Noah. I'm going to get a little bit more into Aronofsky here in a bit. The other producer was Scott Franklin, who was a frequent collaborator with Darren Aronofsky, who also worked with him on things like Requiem for a Dream, Black Swan, Noah, Pi, but he also independently produced the movie Tuscaloosa. One of the other writers in this, because it was not just one writer, was Robert Siegel, who was a longtime writer for The Onion, who also wrote The Onion Movie. He also wrote and directed the movie Big Fan, The Founder, and Turbo. And by Turbo, I mean, yes, the animated DreamWorks Pixar movie with the snails who wanted to race. To give kind of a brief synopsis of the movie, the movie is a, is a character study about an aging professional wrestler who is trying to find where he's going to fit in life, trying to come to grips with the fact that his career as a wrestler really is, if it's not over, it needs to be winding down, and trying to find where he's going to fit in this world if that's not what he is anymore between his relationship or non-relationship with his daughter, uh, another character that he is having a relationship with. It's a, it, 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 it's a character study again, folks. And it's one of my all time favorite movies. This movie was a massive, massive critical success. You know, it, it's the movie that's credited with revitalizing Mickey Rourke's career. There was great Oscar potential in this film. While it is listed as a 2008 film, it was it's listed as such because it was released in November of 2008 at the Venice Film Festival, and it got a select limited capacity release on December 17th of 2008. I believe that was done to try and get it in in time for Oscar consideration, which if that was the idea it was a successful idea because it absolutely got oscar consideration its nationwide release was actually january 23rd of 2009 it was made on a pretty low budget only about six million dollars but it grossed over 45 million dollars this movie being a character study doesn't have as wide of a cast as some of the other movies that i've done and because of that i'm going to talk a little bit more about the individual actors that they chose the main character, the re the titular wrestler, Randy the Ram Robinson, whose real name was Robin Ramzinski, was played by Mickey Rourke. I mean, he... Oh God, what can I say about Mickey Rourke's career? He was in 1941, Body Heat, Year of the Dragon, Nine and a Half Weeks, Angel Heart, The Thin Red Line, Get Carter, Sin City, Francesco. He took a brief hiatus from acting as, for a while and actually became a professional boxer. He had a Decently successful career at it. After The Wrestler, he was in Expendables, the, the Expendable series, rather. He was in Iron Man 2, where he played the character of Whiplash, 
who I believe was an original creation for the movie, a combination of a couple other characters. Anyway, he's also in Immortals and in the sequel for Sin City 2. Mickey Rourke is, of course, pretty well known in the Hollywood industry for being a... He can be a stubborn individual, but he can be hard to do deal with from directors, writers, producers, but he's a fantastic, fantastic actor, and that's usually you kind of have to take that trade off with that. Marissa Tomei played a stripper who was called Cassidy, whose real name was Pam. Marissa Tomei, of course, was in the toxic Avenger. My cousin Vinny, uh, she was in Chaplin with Robert Downey Jr. Welcome to Sarajevo. What women want anger management, the Lincoln lawyer, crazy, stupid love, the big short. Some younger listeners are going to recognize her as aunt may in the Marvel cinematic universe. She is the absolute youngest aunt may they have ever done. The only other two cinematic animes we've gotten were Sally Field, and you're going to have to forgive me because my brain just went left when it should have gone right, and I do not recall the name of the actress that played Aunt May in the Sam Raimi trilogy. The only other character that really has extensive time is Stephanie Ramzinski, who is the estranged daughter of Robin Ramzinski, Randy the Ram Robinson, played by Evan Rachel Wood. Evan Rachel Wood began her career as a child actress. She's She's been in ton of movies. Practical Magic 13, Down in the Valley, Across the Universe, The Ides of March. She voiced Elsa and Anna's mother in Frozen 2 and also did the vocals for the singing that that character did. As far as television shows go, she's been in True Blood, Westworld. Uh, she was in the music video for Wake Me Up When September Ends. She, she's had a pretty extensive career. We have a couple other smaller actors. I say smaller actors. I am so sorry. Smaller parts that are played by Mark Margolis, who's you know, probably best known as Hector Salamanca in Breaking Bad, but he was also in the TV series Oz. Todd Berry, who's predominantly a TV actor and a comedian, and Judah Friedlander, who's probably best known as Frank Rossitano from 30 Rock, but he was also the hug guy from the Dave Matthews Band music video for the song Every Day. They were just in bit parts in the film, like they were... They played his boss at his shop, the, 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 the grocery store that he worked at, for example, uh, landlord, etc., etc. This movie also featured a large number of indie wrestlers. Now, I don't know who all that is listening to this is a wrestling fan like I am. So a lot of these names that I'm going to list off you may not know. And as such, I'm going to try and list off the ones that I think probably people will know. If nothing else, they're names that you've heard. Uh, Necro Butcher, Blue Meanie, Ron Killings, who now wrestles as R-Truth, Jay Lethal, Austin Aries, Claudio Castagnoli, better known as Cesaro, Nigel McGinnis, Drew Gulak, a lot of others. Folks, if I, if I start getting into wrestlers a little too heavy or into wrestling jargon, I'm going to apologize for that right now. When I say I have been a lifelong fan of wrestling, I mean a lifelong fan of professional wrestling. I have watched it since I was a small child. I had to sneak it because we were not allowed to watch it for the longest time until finally my mom just was like, you know what, go ahead and watch it. In fact, for the longest time, the only thing I ever wanted to do for a job as an adult, I wanted to be a professional wrestler. People who know me in real life, this doesn't really surprise them. Here or there. The only other key wrestler character that's in this movie is the Ayatollah, who the character of Randy the Ram Robinson had a classic series of matches and a classic match itself with the Ayatollah. 
And that actor that portrays him is actually a professional wrestler, Ernest Miller, also known as Ernest the Cat Miller. He uh, probably was chosen because while he's not going to blow anybody away with his in-ring style of any kind, he's very solid. He's a very good hand. And because these are aging wrestlers that had their big match in the 80s, the style that he wrestles would have fit in that time period. So it was a good idea to, to use him as that role. All right, folks, we're going to get a little bit into the production here. Uh, Robert Siegel, again, I said earlier he was a writer for The Onion, which The Onion is known for heavy satire. Robert Siegel was also a fan of professional wrestling. Aronofsky's Protozoa Pictures signed him and commissioned him to write a script. Now, Darren Aronofsky also grew up as a wrestling fan, at least when he was younger. In fact, I watched while preparing for this, I watched a couple of documentaries about this, and apparently his grandmother tried to stab a wrestler. I believe she tried to stab Ivan Koloff when he was wrestling in a series of matches that he had with Bruno San Martino. Wrestling fans were crazy in those days. Somebody cut Jake the Snake Roberts' arm with a razor while he was feuding with the Junkyard Dog in IWA, or I'm sorry, Mid-South Wrestling. I'm so sorry, Mid-South, not IWA. It's It's been a day, folks. <laughs> but yeah, he was cut with a razor. I mean, fans have jumped across to attack wrestlers. It was, it was a hell of a thing back in those days. The writing for this actually began shortly after Requiem for a Dream finished in 2005. You know... Because of the licensing issues that they would have had to go with, copyright information, all that kind of stuff, they really couldn't afford to try and make this in current real life as far as, we'll make this wrestler and he exists here. They also couldn't really do a period piece, which was another thing that they had explored the possibility of doing because the relatively lower budget kind of precluded them from being able to do that. And when I say precluded them, if they were going to be doing a period piece, they would have had to have used something like Madison Square Garden or something to that effect. And this, it's just not cheap to use one of those. And they, they kind of had to deal with that. The period piece would have taken place prior to Vince McMahon's global expansion. But here or there, didn't wasn't able to work. Robert Siegel started going to indie shows with Darren Aronofsky to try and get an idea of what they were going to do with this. And one of the things they noticed, they saw older guys that they had grown up watching. Guys like King Kong Bundy. Uh, Virgil, the one-man gang, etc. These were guys who had worked in front of 25,000 people before. And now they were working in front of small crowds of like 200 people for $500 a night. And it hit them that, you know, this isn't like other sports where, you know, these guys are long since retired with millions in the bank. Some of them literally can't stop. They, I mean, Terry Funk had his last match to date at the age of like 69 or 70 years old and was doing somersaults off of rooftops in his early 60s. Ric Flair is almost 70 years old and only finally stopped from an in-ring standpoint when they told him, look, we will not clear you to do this anymore. You need to stop. Because of that, they figured, you know, we can take that idea because wrestlers not being able to stop and not knowing when to stop aging out and whatnot, we can do that. So they decided they were going to go with a more realistic aging wrestler in their own like pocket universe as far as professional wrestling goes. 
There was some concern with the having to do the live crowds because they were going to have larger crowds for this as well as the stunts. However, Mickey Rourke, who played the wrestler, actually trained and did quite a few of his own stunts. He didn't do all of them, but he did do quite a few of them. Like a lot of Darren Aronofsky pictures, once this was written, Darren doesn't do uh, storyboarding. He prefers to film things live like the real world to try and get genuine, authentic reactions out of them. They knew they wanted to do it in the American Northeast because that's probably got the most thriving independent wrestling scene in the United States, at least that's left, and especially at that time. They went to casting. Um, originally, Nicolas Cage was attached to star in the movie. Now, there are quite a few differing reasons given as to why he left or was no longer attached to the project. It really depends on who you ask. He personally has claimed that he did not want to do steroids to prepare his body for the role. You know, others said that he graciously stepped down because the, the movie was really written and meant for Mickey Rourke. I honestly don't know who to believe on this. Again, there are various different accounts as to why he was no longer in it. One thing that could be 100% debunked, Hulk Hogan has claimed that the, the role was initially written and offered for him and that he turned it down because he was uncomfortable with the subject matter. That has been debunked and denied. It was never even remotely considered for Hogan. The only thing that was considered for Hogan that he turned down was the George Foreman grill. And the reason he turned that down was because, brother, that's never going to sell. Well, he was wrong about that to the tune of 40 or $50 million very, very quickly. Now, Mickey Rourke was initially reluctant for the role and didn't really care for the script. But he ultimately signed on because he really wanted to work with Darren Aronofsky. He just didn't feel the script and especially the things that were written. He didn't feel like it was as natural as it could have been. Mickey Rourke has lived through some stuff, folks, between being hard on his luck, you know, having dealing with drug issues, alcohol issues, family issues. And he felt that a lot of the lines that were, that were written there that were for him, he, he didn't feel that those were, you know, that's, that's not something that people in that walk of life would do. So Darren Aronofsky allowed Mickey Rourke to completely rewrite his entire, all of his lines, not the script, but just everything that Randy the Ram would say or do, how he would react. Mickey Rourke was allowed to rewrite his role, essentially. And all he did was write it out, and then Aronofsky himself went through and fixed continuity, punctuation, things like that, to make sure that it flowed better. Um, the character of Stephanie, his estranged daughter, was actually conceptualized because in the professional wrestling world, that is a very, very common thing. Marriages don't last a lot of the time. And, you know, you miss your kids' birthdays, Christmas... First steps, first words, graduations. There are multiple wrestlers that have come forward and said that, look, when we were traveling on the road and doing all this, there were times that we literally just got in just in time to see our own children walk across and receive their high school diploma, give them a hug and tell them good job, only to have to turn around, go back and get in the car and drive to the airport to get to their next gig. It's a hard business on families. So that in and of itself was a ready-made thing like, okay, estrangement from your children 
that goes well with the character study as it is. And this is an already ready-made industry where that kind of thing happens all the time. Same thing with his relationship with the character Randy the Ram's relationship with the Pam slash Cassidy character who's a stripper. You know, a lot of the times back in the days, these, these wrestlers would get to the venues to get ready and they'd have four, five, six hours to kill before the show would start. Easiest place to get food and to get what they thought would be entertainment was a strip club. And ultimately, they ended up writing the stripper's character as almost, not necessarily a mentor, I wouldn't say, for Randy's character, but this character also, you know, she lives a dual life. She has to work between entertaining and being somebody on stage while being somebody else off stage. And that's the kind of thing that really they could they could use that to try and not necessarily guide or try to guide Randy the Ram Robinson through life, but to try and kind of give him like, like it's not too late to try and have a relationship with your daughter. It's not too late for this. It's not too late for that, et cetera, et cetera. When they got ready for filming, filming took 35 days. They had over 35 locations to film at. Um, the trailer park that Randy the Ram lives in, they found a really crappy trailer, fixed up some of the pipes that were in it, fixed up so it had a little bit of heat to it. And that's actually where Mickey Rourke stayed during the course of filming. So he lived in a trailer that had very little heat and not very great running water in upstate New Jersey in winter. I mean, they filmed all throughout Jersey. Hoboken, Tom's River, uh, the Boardwalk, Atlantic City, everything. They filmed, they did a lot of on-set, on-site stuff. Um, they even used a real Acme supermarket because the character has a day job of working in the deli of a supermarket. And actually, Aronofsky would film Mickey Rourke working there for hours at a time and actually interacting with real people. Like, there are some actors that are placed here and there, but a lot of the times when you see scenes where he's working at the deli, those are real people that he is helping out. The camera tended to stay behind him and followed behind him at all times, kind of like an attitude of, okay, the camera follows the wrestler as he's about to walk through the curtain in front of his crowd. Same concept. Um, they, they filmed this on a very quick, rigid schedule because... They needed to keep weekends open so they could film all the wrestling that they had to do on the weekends so that they could use the actual wrestling uh, events that were going on, the indie events that were going on, for those scenes. Everything else was filmed during weekdays, and it would take 14, 15, 16 hours. Again, five, six, seven, eight takes in the dead of winter in New Jersey. They didn't have on-site trailers. They didn't have catering, none of that. So... This was a rough filming session, and Mickey had long days. He got kind of irritated at times, but, you know, he, he had to deal with it. He toughed it out. You know, it was zero degrees at times. They also filmed one of the scenes that he had a wrestling match with the Necro Butcher character. They filmed that at a CZW event in Philadelphia. CZW stands for Combat Zone Wrestling. I don't, again, I'm going to talk to you as if you're not necessarily a wrestling fan on this one. Combat Zone Wrestling is garbage. It is 100% garbage. That is the truest hardcore of hardcore wrestling, if you will. And I put the air quotes around that because these are people that are hitting each other with light tubes. They're using staple guns into people's heads. 
crashing through thumbtacks, barbed wire. Sometimes they light boards and tables on fire. I've seen people take weed whackers to the head, running weed whackers to the forehead, to the to the stomachs. Barbed wire wrapped baseball bats. It's I can't stand it. It's there's no to me that is something that is too much. There is such a thing as suspending your disbelief to enjoy what you are seeing. Like you go and see a movie. You know full well, for example, that Mel Gibson is not actually being drawn and quartered at the end of Braveheart. Okay? Because that's the story of William Wallace. That's not a spoiler. That is history. But you know he's not actually cutting somebody's head off with a giant seven-foot-long claymore. You are suspending your disbelief to enjoy what you are seeing on screen. It's no different when you're a professional wrestling fan watching wrestling on TV or watching it at a live event. You know they're not really trying to kill each other. And you're able to suspend your disbelief because the way they do it, it looks semi-realistic. If you've got somebody getting staples shot into their head and picked up and thrown through a barbed wire wrapped flaming table only to get up 30 seconds later and act like nothing happened? No. that's It's it's garbage. I can't stand it. I have never liked it. Ironically, I enjoyed the old ECW when I was a kid, which was much of the same stuff. Whatever. You mature, your taste mature. I'm sorry to have gone off on a tangent like that. Like I said, this is you're going to have to bear with me at times on this because as a lifelong fan, there were issues I had with it. The CZW scene, the show they did, though, for all my problems with Combat Zone Wrestling, for all my issues with that, that is where Darren Aronofsky, that is where Marissa Tomei, that is where everybody saw Mickey Rourke truly, in that moment, become a professional wrestler. Become the wrestler. He became that character. It's like he finally understood it between the crowd, the reaction, everything that was going on. He finally got what it was that was connecting people to professional wrestling in that moment. And I mean, the Necro Butcher character went through a ladder, or I'm sorry, went off of a ladder through a, a bar wire wrap table in one scene on that. And that's the first time that, that guy has ever actually done that himself. Of all the hardcore crap he had done up to that point, of all the garbage that he had done, he had never actually come off a ladder before. So, hey, good for him trying new things. Um, I said earlier that Mickey Rourke does a lot of his own stunts. He trained for eight weeks at the Wild Samoan Academy in Allentown, Pennsylvania, which has churned out some of the best wrestlers in the industry, by far. It's headed by Afa Anawai, formerly of the, you know, Wild Samoans with his brother or cousin. I'm sorry, I honestly forget. Sika Anawai, that family itself is synonymous with professional wrestling. That is the wrestling family that Dwayne The Rock Johnson comes from. It's a, it's a, it's... There are some names that you hear and you automatically associate them with their given thing. You hear the name Reagan, you automatically associate that with politics. You hear Earnhardt, NASCAR. Also a huge fan of NASCAR and stock car racing, folks. If you know me, that should not surprise you. On Hawaii, that's wrestling. You hear that name, you know, oh, you're probably wrestlers is what you are. They are Onawaii members. 
that are wrestling all over the world now, that wrestled all over the world 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, even 40, 50 years ago. Anyway, again, he trained for 8 to 10 weeks there and did a lot of his own stunts and did a lot of bumps himself. They did have an indie wrestler, the USA Kid, who would be his stunt double for some of the more extreme stunts that were done and more the extreme bumps that he took, like falling off a ladder or when he'd get hit with chairs or if they had to show a really stiff or snug shot where he would actually get slapped across the face. Most of the time you see that, that was the USA Kid. However, there is a moment early on where Randy the Ram blades himself, which is the act that wrestlers do to cause themselves to get color, to bleed. And Mickey Rourke actually did that himself. He, le he legitimately had the little piece of razor blade wrapped in tape that he ran slightly across his forehead in a couple, mo a couple spots to get blood flowing so that it looked like he'd been busted wide open. So kudos to him on that. There's a scene midway through the game, or through the, I'm sorry, through the movie, and it might actually be a little earlier than that, where you see the character of Randy the Ram Robinson playing an old Nintendo Entertainment System game called Wrestle Jam 88 that features the Ram and the Ayatollah in it. That was a semi-real game. And what I mean by that is that Darren Aronofsky requested a fully functional working video game. They got programmers together and they made a playable demo with a real working interface and believable AI. There was 1980s appropriate music and graphics. I don't know where that game ended up. That game could have very well ended up with Aronofsky. It could have ended up with Mickey Rourke. It could have ended up in the trash. But I thought that was pretty damn cool that they did that. You know, they improvised all scenes in the locker rooms for realism purposes. And the climactic final match in the movie, the reason, again, it goes back to they use Ernest the Cat Miller for that because of his own experience. Now that match, that's when you hear some real wrestling jargon going on in that match. Like at one point they can tell something's wrong with Randy and the Ayatollah or Bob tells him, come on, take it home, take it home. Which means when they say take it home, that means go to the finish for the match that we have planned out. Uh, that's, I, I can't even describe that match and that final scene because the way it gets built up to that point, it just, the movie builds and builds to where that's all he has left is wrestling. He doesn't have, his relationship with his daughter can't be repaired. The budding relationship he had with the stripper, he can't do it. He cannot give up being that wrestler and being in front of the camera which is honestly something that a lot of wrestlers end up dealing with, and they don't know when to step away. When you've had 20,000 fans chanting your name, it can be sometimes hard to know when it's over. And that ultimately, again, this, this movie is about one man who has been so consumed by what he has done throughout his life, he doesn't know who or what he is without it. If you ever get the chance to watch this movie, I don't care if you're not a wrestling fan, watch this movie. It's a wonderful, beautiful character study. Darren Aronofsky's main composer, Clint Mowell, who has done a lot of his movies, you know, he, he composed the musical score and the background score you hear on this. He himself got with 
Slash of Guns N' Roses. Slash contributed music, he contributed guitar to the music free of charge. Bruce Springsteen was on tour in Europe and he wrote a song for the movie called The Wrestler that plays over the credits. Mickey Rourke sent him a letter and a copy of the strip and requested that he write a song for the movie, so he did. You know, towards the end of the movie, for his last match, Mickey Rourke uses, or I'm sorry, Randy the Ram Robinson uses Sweet Child of Mine as his entrance theme. Axl Rose donated the song free of charge because of the low budget. He also did this because when the real Mickey Rourke was boxing, that was the music he would walk to the ring for. You know, a lot of other metal bands, they gave the rights for songs for this movie. There were several songs by Rat, Quiet Riot, Slaughter, Cinderella. There's even a hip-hop song by Lil Wayne. Music is so important to this movie, and it has been for the last several movies I've done, because the music almost takes on a characterization itself and helps you build in this movie. But more than anything else, music is a driving force behind this movie, because before everything else, before getting together with Siegel, before going to indie shows before any of that, when he decided that that's what he was going to do, he's going to make a movie about an aging professional wrestler. The Charles Mingus song, The Clown, which is a pure instrumental song that has a poem read over the music about a clown who discovers the crowd he's been performing for this entire time, they have a bloodlust. They want to see violence. And he escalates and eventually accidentally kills himself in front of this crowd. That song, that whole thing, is a heavy, heavy inspiration for all of the wrestling aspects and everything that you see that builds throughout this movie towards the end and toward that climactic final scene with Randy the Ram Robinson. You know, they even got WWE to help promote the movie. Kinda. Um... Had the 15th Screen Actors Guild Awards. Okay. Mickey Rourke. This, this movie got seen by Vince McMahon and by other professional wrestlers and professional wrestling personalities around, shortly before it came out in theaters. And one of the things that came out of this, a wrestler named Chris Jericho, who also has a rock band, he was kind of Vince's go-to guy with working with celebrities at that time. And they're like, you know, do you think that we could help promote this movie and we could get maybe Mickey Rourke to work a match at WrestleMania? After watching the movie and watching some training footage, Jericho's like, yeah, I could, you know what? We could probably do a good six to eight minute match. Folks, that is tremendous that after only eight weeks of training, Chris Jericho thought that they could do a six to eight minute good quality match between himself and Mickey Rourke. They were getting it all set up. They had it ready. They're like, okay, we're going to go ahead and we're going to do this. Rourke let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> At the 15th annual Screen Actors Guild Awards on the red carpet, as he was walking in and being interviewed, Mickey Rourke said he could not wait to, quote, kick Chris Jericho's ass at WrestleMania. The problem with that, the Screen Actors Guild Awards was before the Academy Awards. I mentioned on my Facebook page that Eddie Murphy was a considered universal shoe-in and lock to win 
Best Supporting Actor for his role in Dreamgirls, which would have 100% been the true pinnacle of his career. He did not win that because shortly before the Academy Awards came out, the movie Norbit came out. And in that movie, he has a dual role in that where he plays the character of Norbit, but he also plays an overweight woman who embodies a lot of negative stereotypes. And the movie was so harshly panned that the Academy, like it, it absolutely cost him the Oscar. They're like, we can't get, we, we can't have an Academy Award winner have that kind of a movie come out right before he wins this kind of thing. So he didn't win the Oscar. Folks, it was the same thing for Mickey Rourke. Everybody believed that Mickey Rourke was a shoe-in to win the Oscar, the Academy Award, for Best Actor, and that the movie itself was going to win the Academy Award for Best Film. That call-out, him choosing to get involved in real wrestling. Mainstream media looks down on professional wrestling a lot. That's why, you know, you watch an NFL game. You see a commercial for Pepsi. Or for Cadillac. It's cost millions of dollars to have that commercial on there. Professional wrestling, they their ad space is only like $15,000. Mainstream media looks down on professional wrestling. And because of this, it's widely expected that that's why he ended up not getting an Academy Award. They tried to salvage it. You know, they, try, they went on Larry King where after this point, Mickey Rourke had pulled out of the match. Jericho and Vince thought that they could maybe talk him into coming back if they kind of, you know, trash-talked him a little bit. And, you know, he, he eventually he agreed to come to WrestleMania. But when he came to WrestleMania, he brought a bunch of bodyguards with him. Three really big guys and one smaller guy. And, you know, Jericho legitimately believed that Rourke was actually going to hurt him. I wanted him. So he wanted to meet him face to face. I'm like, look, all that, that was just me playing a character just like you do. I just wanted you to try and accept it. Rourke could not believe this. And when it finally clicked in his head, like, oh my God, you were acting just like I was acting. Water under the bridge. Everything was fine. And as he was leaving away from the ring, Vince said to Jericho that between you, me, Pat, Pat Patterson, and somebody else they had with him, you know, those, those bodyguards, they... Nothing would have happened. They, they'd, have, they'd have quickly taken care of them. And Rourke had even said that, you know, I was fully prepared. I paid for these men to come in here. And if I didn't like what was going down, they were going to tear you apart. They kind of laughed about that. And Vince was like, I mean, look at that one guy, that little guy. He would have been no problem. And Jericho kind of smiled and said, well, you know what? If things happen and we get it, you take the little guy. McMahon goes, damn right, I'll take the little guy. The little guy was Frank Shamrock. If you are a mixed martial arts fan, you know exactly who and what Frank Shamrock is. If you are not, he was widely considered the greatest light heavyweight fighter of all time for a very long time. He was the, one of the greatest champions that the UFC ever had. Issues with Dana White aside. Folks, I'm sorry. I'm kind of getting a little off track here. It's Again, I'm, I'm talking about Mickey Rourke here. He Eventually, he did show up at WrestleMania 25 in 2009 after Jericho had won a match. And they used the whole thing with the wrestler where Jericho... Feuded with aging wrestlers who didn't know how to get out of the business, as it were. And after winning that match and beating up Ric Flair after the match, he taunted Mickey Rourke, who was sitting ringside. Rourke came into the ring and, quote-unquote, punched him out. As I said again, this movie had massive critical acclaim. It was called everything from heartwarming, heart-wrenching. Rourke himself was described as a virtual howl of pain. 
that comes from a very real place and builds to an ultimate crescendo. Most critics loved this film. Like there were very, very few that did not like it. Um, Roger Ebert left it off of his best film list at the end of the year. He did not do so because he didn't like the movie. He, he said that it was for complicated and boring reasons. And from what I understand, he did do a longer interview about what those reasons were. Folks, I'm not going to keep talking and, and talk on about Roger Ebert for this. Just suffice it to say that most critics like the movie. Now, the reaction to this movie within the professional wrestling community, McMahon personally called both Mickey Rourke and Aronofsky before everything to tell them that he was very touched by it and loved it. Bret Hart called it clairvoyant, but ultimately a dark misinterpretation of the wrestling business and felt that there were parallels to himself. If you know Bret Hart, you understand that this is not a surprise. He's very much become the crotchety old get-off-my-lawn man of professional wrestling. Good old J.R. Jim Ross and Mick Foley absolutely loved the movie. Rowdy Roddy Piper was moved to tears over the movie because, again, this is something that the... The very raw, harsh reality that you see on that screen is what a lot of wrestlers experience. Professional wrestler Virgil, who was the quote-unquote manservant for Ted DiBiase, there are pictures on the internet of him going to these fan conventions and sitting alone while no one is there to, sign, to get an autograph signed from him. It's a very real thing. Jim Cornette disliked the movie. You know who Jim Cornette is. That's not a surprise at all. I mean, it's it, it, it cannot be overstated just how much wrestling fans, wrestlers, and non-wrestlers alike truly loved this movie. You know, it's... I, I can't say enough. It was nominated for multiple Academy Awards, multiple Golden Globe Awards. It ultimately won two Golden Globes, although, as I said before, Best Picture and Best Actor it did not get at the Academy Awards. It did win the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival. Which, the last movie that won the Golden Lion was The Joker. Which should tell you how much that award truly means. Oh, again, I love this movie. <laughs> I love this movie so much. It is... Again, even if you're not a wrestling fan, there's something that you can understand in this movie about a man who is, you know... He's at the end of his days. He's at the end of his threshold and the tolerance for everything. But at the end of the day, he can't quit it, and it's all he knows, so he's going to keep doing it. Even after he has a heart attack, he has drug issues, all these different things that have happened to him, he can't walk away. And there's something very real and very raw and very... Everybody has something that they can draw a comparison on that to it. I can't speak highly enough of this movie. I really can't. But at the end of the day, I'm no I'm not going to talk about it anymore because I've talked for almost 40 minutes and I'm going to go ahead and guess at a good 20 minutes this is my thoughts on wrestling. <laughs> I'm sorry for that. That's not what you guys come here for. I hope you have enjoyed hearing me talk about the wrestler. Next week, I'm going to be sticking on a similar tangent to this. We're going to be covering the Fighter with Mark Wahlberg, which is a movie. Um, it's a biopic about a real boxer. And honestly, I'm the episode after that is probably going to be Warrior. I, I feel like I'm on a little bit of a roll here with this. So yeah, next week, The Fighter. It'll be out 
on the first Sunday of April. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I enjoyed talking about it. And as soon as I get done recording, I'm going to go sit down and watch The Wrestler. So, folks, until I see you again next week, once again, I am Kid Kong. I will see you at the movies, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Goodbye.